Welcome to On the Streets. As always, I'm your host, Jordan Orada, and with me today is our trauma medical director here at Swedish, Dr. Casey Benton. Welcome. Thank you. How are you today? I'm great. Um, I guess I will apologize first for how we may sound. We have our masks on. We're in our recording studio trying to be respectful of COVID and what it's doing to the world. And we're slightly within the social distancing. I think. Put your fingers out. Yep. Uh, uh, We got six uh, feet. All right. So I guess we'll definitely talk a little bit about COVID today. Yeah. But before we get into it, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got here to Denver? So I was originally born and raised in New Mexico, went to medical school in Albuquerque, and then moved to Minnesota and was there for my training, a couple of fellowships, master's degree in administration, practicing for the last 17 years. So coming back to Colorado two years ago was a lot closer to coming back toward home and skiing in the Rocky Mountains is what we've been doing every year and we decided enough was enough. Time to move back. Yeah. And Colorado's a lot like New Mexico, except cleaner and nicer and prettier, right? <laughs> Isn't that... <laughs> no offense. It's beautiful there. It is beautiful. It's the land of enchantment, right? It is. Well, so glad you're here. Thank you. So glad to have you as part of our team at Swedish. And uh, I guess now with with COVID, with everybody on lockdown, mm-hmm. Denver is still locked down while a lot of the state has started to open up. People just aren't doing things. They're not driving to work. They're not... They're just not out and about. So are we seeing a lot less trauma? Are you just twiddling your thumbs? No, uh, we are seeing different kinds of trauma. So what we are not seeing is we're not seeing the motor vehicle crashes. We're not seeing the drunk driving. We're not seeing the work-related accidents. We're not seeing a lot of the skiing accidents because all the ski resorts are closed. But what we are seeing is an earlier influx of the summertime type of trauma. So we're seeing lots of kids with broken arms that are falling off the playground or up falling off of um, their scooters, their bikes and stuff at home because they're at home. Now, we're also seeing a lot of home improvement mishaps, uh, lots and lots of ladders out there, lots of people trimming their trees, you know. And so these are typically the kinds of things we see in June and early July that we're seeing in, you know, the end of March and early April. So not remarkably different stuff. I I guess I would think that... People are getting a little cabin fever. People are going a little crazy. There's maybe more domestic stuff. Are you guys seeing any of that, or is it just not coming in, maybe? Uh, I... You know, domestic stuff, that there's always kind of an undercurrent of that. Um, we haven't seen a big uptick in that. We're seeing the usual. Uh, we're not seeing more of it, although everybody's been waiting for that. We're just not seeing that. One of the things that we are seeing, though, is people are getting hurt at home. Um, there's lots of people falling, ladders in the house, tripping, but they're not coming in for several days. And that's new, and that's different, and it really changes how we're managing these people, and it changes their healing course. We had a guy who fell off a ladder. He was <laughs> cleaning out his gutters, right, which is what everybody's going to be doing in the next month or so, uh, who fell and kind of bumped his side several times down the ladder on his way down, but didn't come in for three four days. And by the time he did come in, pain was out of control. He had blood and air in his chest from a popped lung. I mean, he's lucky he didn't die because he lived alone. But the, you know, the downside of that, though, is that now you've got old blood clot in your chest, well, that's not that's not simple anymore, right? That needs an operation, and it wasn't necessary. Uh, so we're seeing things like that where people are waiting too long because they're scared of COVID, and I get it. But the hospital's safe. 
The ED is safe. The trauma team is safe. Um, none of our trauma patients have contracted COVID from other patients here in the hospital. But I, I just really want to get the word out that, man, people shouldn't wait. And people that are being picked up are probably sicker than they would have been in normal normal time. Yeah, I think we're seeing the same thing in the ER, lower volume, but much higher acuity. It's people right. who have completed strokes, who have completed heart attacks, who have, or, or just really, really sick. They're the sickest of the sick. It's, it's nice because it's filtered out some of that extraordinarily low acuity or zero acuity that we don't ever want to see in the ER. But that leads us to believe that we're missing a lot of patients who should be coming in. A lot of the traumas, a lot of yeah. the strokes. And I think Part of that has been EMS being aggressive about trying to protect hospitals and not overload them with patients who maybe shouldn't be here. But we're at a point now where we're kind of past that that tsunami we expected. We're plateaued. We're kind of coasting. And, and everybody in our area is, you know, at 50% or so capacity and yeah. doing well. And we have the staff. We, we want these patients to come in. It's much better for them if they get treated today instead of three days from now, right? Well, three days from now with an operation and three more days in the hospital. I mean, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and for them financially, for them yeah. healing, yeah. so many factors in how do we truly get the message out because we can tell EMS, we can tell the astute people who listen to something like this, but how do we change that paradigm and get the public to actually change their habits because there is still a ton of fear about what this is, what it looks like, where it lives, and is it safe in the hospitals? And how do we get that message out to the public? I think this is going to be a word of mouth, and I think that there's going to have to be, you know, kind of public service announcements. I think that, you know, as, as healthcare providers, as first-line responders, if we can get the word out, we're a respected opinion. We're the respected authorities. The hospitals are a safe place to be. What's not safe is if you're sick or you're injured and you're sitting at home, you know, then, then we're getting back into like the 1800s and a lot of it's kind of veterinary medicine, right? It, it's not just trauma. We're seeing strokes. We're seeing heart attacks. The general surgery patient population, they're not coming in until the gallbladder is dead. They're not coming in until the appendix has ruptured. They're not coming in with the bowel obstruction until it's ruptured and the patient's septic, right? I mean, it's all of these things that we, we just need to get the word out that people need to go to the doctor like they used to go to the doctor. Um, it's easier to manage. It's easier to recover. It's better for everybody. Now, I'm going to play devil's advocate for just a second. Yeah. As a trauma surgeon, yeah. don't you like doing those those fun wild cases and getting the knife out and doing more instead of doing less? Oh, absolutely. I do, right? I'm a cutter. I mean, that's what I do. I love to cut people. Um, but what I, what I really hate to see is I hate to see people that are in a condition that just wasn't necessary. I mean, ultimately, we're all healers, right? I don't want to see people suffer more than what they should have suffered. It pains me to see people that could have had a, you know, 24, 48 hour hospital stay just to get the pain under control. And instead, now we're getting them through an operation. They're sitting in the hospital for several days and now they're going to rehab, not back home. Yeah. Um, it's that, that yeah. extra avoidable stuff. And yeah. You know, yeah, we're here. We're emergency personnel. We want to help you when you need it, but we don't want it to be worse than it has right. to be, right? Right. So how's how's life at home? Life life at home is good. I'm I'm uh, also a victim to the uh, the summertime trauma. My daughter broke her arm a couple weeks ago, running around outside and tripped and fell and you know 
broke a wrist. Bro- actually broke her elbow this time. Oh, this um, time. <laughs> this time, yeah. This is this is the third break. She's a little bit of a rough and tumble kind of gal. Um, yeah, family family is safe. I think that uh, our our group of uh, trauma surgeons um, we've really been thoughtful about how we've done the schedule and how to minimize uh, the risks to our families and to each other. All of us are all healthy. All of our families are healthy and safe, so we're good. I think that that's actually a great point because most of our listeners are people who work on the front lines and yeah. are struggling with that balance too. Do you have any pearls that you can pass along to people who are still struggling with that? And how do you keep your family safe and confident that you're not bringing disease home and that you're safe and and going to be able to continue to take care of them? Yeah, you know, we've, we've all done slightly different things, but I think one of the things that we all have in common is, you know, if we're walking around the hospital and we're passing near patient care areas, the first thing that we're doing is we're trying to shower before we leave the building, put on a fresh set of scrubs, and then when we get home, change out of those, shower again, and not bring that back into our house. The other is many of us have our own car uh, that we use for work, etc. We're not letting anybody else in that car uh, until this, you know, the peak is kind of washed over us. Um, and so if we have trips or um, the family's going somewhere together, which hasn't happened. Yeah, which is until nice because now. there's nowhere to go. There's right. nothing to do. Although yesterday we all went to the grocery store just to buy hot dog buns because the kids hadn't been out of the house in a month. You know, but but if we're going anywhere, uh, we take somebody else's car. Nobody else is allowed in the car that I drive to work. Um, you know, and, and this will lighten up uh, a little bit as, as the big wave passes us. I mean, I don't I'm, I'm not naive I think there's another wave coming I just don't know how big that's going to be but I think if we can all make sure that we're being conscientious about doing what we're doing washing hands a lot you know I think we can I think we can maintain a fairly safe home life too yeah yeah and it seems like in the last couple of weeks people are finally kind of feeling comfortable with how they should be dealing with this, how they should be taking care of themselves, how much PPE to use, how often to use it, all these things that caused a lot of anxiety in the first several weeks of this. I think everybody's gotten more comfortable. Would you say that you're seeing that in your department as well? Yeah, I I, I think we're seeing that. I think out in the community, I'm seeing people are more comfortable. Everybody's on a mask. I think uh, that's going to be the new norm probably for the rest of this year, Um, especially when we hit flu season in the fall. You know, the sniffles, the aches, the pains, nobody's going to know if that's the regular flu, a cold, or COVID. I think the the new normal will be the mask and the you know the politically incorrect and the the publicly scorned are going to be the people with oh my god a naked face right. <laughs> um, so yeah, I think I think uh, I think everybody's a little more comfortable. Yeah. And how have things been in the OR? Have you seen any major changes in the way that things go down in the OR? Well, so most of what trauma surgeons do, um, we also do the uh, emergency general surgery. Everything's an emergency, yeah. right? Uh, there's no pre-planning. We don't have the luxury of testing our patients ahead of time and waiting for the test results to come back. So things have changed. We assume every single patient that we're operating on is COVID positive, meaning that everybody is wearing an N95. Everybody but the anesthesiologist leaves the room when we're intubating or extubating. It's changed our laparoscopic cases a little bit. We're not just degassing the peritoneum to the OR. Uh, We suction it out so that that goes through a viral filter. So there are things that we have changed. I think that they are, again, going to become the new norm because there are a lot of this that we 
don't know anything about. There's a lot of theory, but the bottom line is we're trying to do what's safest for us and for the patient. Yeah, and it seems to be moving a lot faster than we can keep up with. Yeah. <laughs> and so yeah. as soon as we learn something, it maybe has changed. Right. And the virus has changed or the way that we're thinking about it or the weather. And yeah. it's just such a moving target. Is that causing more stress and anxiety in your team? Or is, I mean, I think we're in a unique position as that's kind of always how we operate is right. all the unknowns and you're always planning for the worst and hoping for the best. And so it hasn't changed a lot, you know, pre-hospitally. How about no, for the trauma team? Probably you know, the it same, really, right? it really hasn't changed a lot. I mean, again, you're right. Um, just about everything that we deal with is the unknown right? We don't know what's coming in. We don't know when it's coming. We don't know how severe. We don't know if there's been an infectious exposure versus a chemical contaminant. We don't know. And so, no, it really hasn't changed a lot about what we do, how we think about it, um, how we plan. We've also been in touch with our colleagues all over the world and in other centers here in the U.S. Um, And we've also been in direct communication constantly with the other trauma centers within the Denver Metro, um, despite the fact that we're all in competition with each other. We're all really good friends and we share information and try to help each other out because the ultimate goal is to help patients in our community. We're all doing the same kinds of things. In fact, I know that uh, a couple of the trauma centers are taking what we're doing in terms of doing tracheostomies and the percutaneous feeding tube placements on COVID patients as their practice because we've put a lot of thought into it and we've talked to people all over the world about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And we've talked to the national experts. Um, so we've got a good system in place. Trauma surgeons are pretty adaptable. Times change, big disaster, you know, international worldwide pandemic. We're ready for it. And it's it's not really unusual for us. We're always dealing with the unknown. And is that level of collaboration internationally, is that something that is baseline for you guys? Or has that really blossomed in this time as you're reaching out for best practices? And how, how are you dealing with this as is that a, a new practice? No, it's um, it's actually not. It's something that we do whenever we're faced with something that's a little unusual. Um, all of us have contacts all over the world just by the mere fact that the trauma world is not giant. It's a fairly select group and most of you know each other um, to some degree or another. And trauma all over the world is very similar. And so it's not something new and different that we've done. Uh, we will often do it if we're facing something that's a little unusual or a challenge like dealing with COVID and trauma. Have you learned anything really interesting or useful from different parts of the world that hadn't dawned on us locally? Um, We were hearing about it early on, I think kind of uh, mid to late March, that we were hearing about the different manifestations of COVID, um, that a lot of them would have intestinal issues, um, GI issues, and to watch for that because from an emergency surgery perspective, that was going to be important to not miss. So we heard about that probably six weeks before it really became kind of a talked about thing here in the U.S. Uh, And we were sharing that with our colleagues here in in Denver. There's not really things that that we were not aware of. I think there are things that have come up, but I think we were aware of them earlier because of our relationships. Yeah, good. All right. Now I'm going to ask, do you have any cases that you've dealt with in the last month or six weeks or so that you can kind of walk us through that there was a problem because someone waited? I know we talked about the the latter case and the ribs. Do you have any other ones that would be interesting to kind of walk through and how it changed the etiology of what you had to do and the healing process or the patient maybe didn't heal because of this? 
Yeah, we, uh, there are several. We've had people that have tripped and fallen at home. I mean, that's a common mechanism for injury, but didn't want to come in. And by the time they did come in, they came in because they had had a small subdural hematoma. And, you know, typically these are not going to get operated on, but they're managed, they're, they're watched, and they're put on anti-seizure medication for a week or two. And this patient didn't come in, um, had really severe headaches, associated nausea with that. By the time they came in, they had, an acute kidney injury and had a seizure. And so now this is no longer a benign thing, right? They had a seizure at home. They had a seizure in the ED. Now they're on a lifetime of anti-seizure medication. They may have set themselves up for having a long-term seizure disorder. And then they were in the hospital for a week uh, waiting for their kidneys to recover. That's a really simple, could have been here, could have been gone in 24 to 48 hours. So with that acute kidney injury, that not only is going to change dosing and things that you do acutely, but does that put that patient at risk for longer term injuries? Yeah, absolutely. Depending on the age of the patient and what their other comorbidities are, acute kidney injury can result in kidney failure dialysis, chronic dialysis, or put them at risk for the next time they have acute kidney injury that they don't recover. It's a big deal. Big deal. And so what other, I mean, so people are, they're staying home more. They're probably drinking more at home. They're not getting in bar fights, which no, is No, but they're good. falling but they're more falling because they're drinking at home. <laughs> so you got the foosh, the fall on outstretched hands. Yep. You've got the head injuries. Yep. What other kind of things are you seeing a little more of in a different way? Falling off of ladders. Everybody's <laughs> doing their home repair right now. Driving me crazy. Sorry, I'm guilty. I was on my roof no, yesterday. Nope. I'm, I'm in trees. I'm in bushes. I'm yeah. just like, it's I got to get out of the house. Yeah, driving me crazy. Uh, I... I really feel like uh, ladders should be a young person's game, right? If you're what's, over the what's age, the age of limit? Thirty. I'm oh, I'm gonna man. say thirty. I I'm know. out. I know. I can't I, hire people to do that. Uh, you know, there there's got to be some teenage kid <laughs> in the neighborhood who's got cat-like reflexes that you and I don't anymore. Um, I, I, ladders are ladders are just deadly. They really are. We we see more of people over the age of 40, 45 falling off of ladders with really significant injuries that just wasn't necessary. And we all think that we're really good and physically fit and we're flexible, et cetera, but we're just not as quick as we were when we were in our 20s. Yeah. Is it just me or do I still see myself as like a 22 year old? Oh, I'm totally like 24 in my own mind, but I'm not. But that's not true. That's not true. And I feel that every day. Yeah. I, uh, I (laughs) totally, uh, kind of, uh, did the back door uh, reroute of my husband's plans because he was planning on getting on the ladder and cleaning out the gutters. And I called and hired a company to come out the day before he was planning on doing it. That's a cold move. It is. But, you know, I I, I just don't want to come home and find him. <laughs> can't you know, afford to lose him around the no, house right now, right? No. Uh, we just see so much of that. Yeah. We really do. Any other patterns in in the injuries you guys are seeing? Uh, The summertime activity patterns, we're seeing bike crashes, we're seeing motorcycle crashes, we're seeing kids falling off of skateboards, scooters, because they're outside more. The online school really is not keeping kids occupied for eight to nine hours a day. It just is not. And their parents are occupied probably too, so they... right are pushing them to get outside and just keep themselves busy. Uh, We're seeing kids falling out of trees. We haven't seen a lot of animal bites yet. They're not pestering their their pets or other people's pets. We are seeing some of those, but not the big summertime uptick. Um, But we're just seeing, you know, activity-related injuries. Healthy related injuries. And the, the, the more severe stuff is coming in right away, true? 
Uh, yes, yes. We're still seeing the occasional highway speed motor vehicle crashes. People are going faster because there's nobody out there. I think that we're, we're seeing more than we usually would. But yes, the really severely injured stuff we're seeing right away. It's the people that are at home and injured who, that don't realize how badly they're hurt that are sticking it out for one to two to three days before they show up um, that really has changed the practice of, of trauma here. And are you, do you feel like the team is able to adjust to that pretty well? Or has it been difficult for you guys to, to really change your practice and the kinds of things you're having to treat and how you're having to treat them? Um, it's, uh, they're, they're not things that we typically see on uh, patients who are presenting to the ED. Right. I mean, these are complications that you might see that are have been in the hospital for several days um, somewhere else and transferred in. We're having to be more suspicious. We're having to think a little bit outside the box because it's just not the norm. Seeing patients, you know, two, three days after their injury, you're looking for different things. You're not looking for things that are going to kill them right now. You're looking for things that are going to kill them by the end of the week. Yeah. And I think so that's a, a great kind of transition is as EMS providers in yeah. the field, how do we change our index? What types of things should we be looking at? And how do we change our interview skills to to adapt to how people are changing the way they use the 911 system? Yeah. So I mean, what, what we're kind of seeing is that people are calling 911 because they can't actually get to the car. They can't manage to get down the stairs by themselves anymore, but not because they've fallen and they can't get up. And so it's just a different ballgame, right? Typically in trauma, I think about, you know, what's killing my patient right now, right? But if you've survived at home for a couple of days, you don't have any of those things, <laughs> right? Or, or you'd be dead. Yeah. But that's really kind of the whole purpose of trauma activations and getting somebody and getting all the resources at the trauma bay is figuring out what's trying to kill my patient right now and stop that. And then let's try to figure out what's going to kill the patient in the next three, four hours, and we'll stop that. Yeah, if we're way not, outside of that golden hour We're way outside trauma. of that. And so and now so it's way then more complicated, Typically, right? <laughs> what's going to kill people are infections, right? And so I think that there has to be a higher suspicion of looking at the situation and seeing if there's a superimposed infection on top of that, seeing if there's dehydration, electrolyte abnormalities, kidney dysfunction on top of that. For a lot of these people who are falling at home, many of them may be alcoholics, and if they've been down for a couple of days look at alcohol withdrawal on top of their injuries. It's just a little bit of a different slant seeing things, you know, in a more advanced stage than what we're typically used to. Yeah. So in the field, it's, I mean, a totally different practice too. Yeah. It's the, the things that we're used to looking for and the way that we treat them doesn't really jive doesn't, anymore, no. right? No, it doesn't, doesn't really apply in the current era with people delaying care. And this may not lessen up as COVID kind of washes over because people are unemployed, people have lost jobs, people have lost their insurance coverage, and people are going to be not coming in because they have no coverage. So we're still going to see the late presentations of all these things. And I think that's going to persist for a while. So what are the top things that you would suggest for EMS providers early on in the treatment of any patient? How do you change what you're looking at? So if it's not the golden hour of trauma, it's not fresh, you're peeling someone off the sidewalk, they're at home, they're a little altered, they have a fever. What do we know? How do you get a good history out of that patient? You're probably not. Um, <laughs> but, but what you can almost guarantee is that they're all going to need some fluid resuscitation. Uh, regardless of, of what their injury, what the, what the issue is, they're probably 
going to need some fluid resuscitation. You're going to be looking and having to deal with more than one diagnosis. It's not just trauma. It's not just an MI. It's going to be an MI with pneumonia. It's going to be a trauma with kidney failure. It's going to be the rib fractures with alcohol withdrawal syndrome. It's not going to be simple and you're going to have to put on the thinking cap and and figure out there's going to be at least two diagnoses with all these patients. So I know there's a lot of really good books about emergency medicine, trauma, differential diagnoses, and really working through those. Do you have any that are favorites of yours or were that you would recommend? No, not anymore. Most of those, thankfully, have just kind of been learned and ingrained. Um, No, I don't. All right, I'll have some of our researchers pick, yeah. pick a couple favorites because there's one, I think it's called emergency medicine that I have in my office and I haven't looked at for years, right. but um, it was invaluable to me, especially when I was new working on figuring out all these differentials. How do you figure out this from this from this from this? And can you even do that? Or do you need labs? Do you have to take them in? I mean, obviously right. at this point, these are going to be complex patients. and they They're going to be very in. complex. Yeah. Yeah. Well... I don't think I have anything else. Do you have any anything else that you want to add? No, other than don't get on ladders. Don't get on ladders. <laughs> Hire some kid to do that. <laughs> Sacrifice um, the youngins. Or wear a helmet when you're doing it. <laughs> I don't know. Neck brace. Um, no, other than, you know, these are extraordinary times. And I think that the the changes that we're seeing, many of them are going to stick around for a while. I think that some of the fallout from this, you know, delayed presentations to healthcare in general, the acuity of patients that are calling 911, I think that's going to persist for a while, a year, maybe longer. And we've all just got to, to help each other because if these are tough times and they're going to be weird and we're going to see some really odd changes and trends. But I think open communication back and forth and what we're seeing in the field, what we're seeing in the ED, what we're seeing in the emergency departments and the OR, ICUs, if we can just keep open lines of communication because this is unprecedented. Yeah, I think that's a really great point is what we're seeing out in the field. You know, we've been doing a lot more paramedic initiated refusals. We're trying to keep patients out, but now we're realizing that maybe that was a mistake and these patients really need to be in because we're potentially causing more harm than good. And the system certainly now is able to support it. So let's make sure we're keeping the index of suspicion high, open lines of communication, and be ready to deal with multiple things instead of just a single thing. Yeah. And you know what, the trauma surgeons and as a whole, wherever you go, they're a group and a population of individuals who don't mind surprises, they don't mind the zebras, they don't mind the complex, they don't mind the unsuredness of what's coming. That's just who they are. Uh, and we're prepared. We're ready. We've got room, and if we don't have room, we'll make room. That's that's how we've always operated. And right now, we've got lots and lots of space to deal with lots and lots of different kinds of patients. So we're ready. Bring it on. Thank you, Casey. I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you. All right. Be safe, everybody.